When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Head west out of New Orleans, and you'll end up on vast stretches of concrete bridges, carrying you over acre upon acre of Louisiana swampland. Tragically, over-harvesting of the cypress has left the Manshack swamp scarred and only a glimmer of its former majesty. The lack of giant bald cypress groves rooting themselves into the muddy marsh has contributed to much of the erosion that's left southeastern Louisiana's wetlands vulnerable to vicious storms and hurricanes. Cypress logging first became a significant industry in South Louisiana during the late 1800s. All through the area, small logging boom towns appeared and flourished, often isolated from the outside world, accessible only by boat. Towns like Ruddock and Frenier. Unfortunately, some of these small logging communities that once thrived here have since been reabsorbed back into the wetlands, victims of the exceedingly violent storms that the Great Cypress Forest once protected them from. And it is here, deep in the Manshack Swamp, that the remnants of the town of Frenier remain. But according to some, the town's destruction wasn't due to just any storm. Rather, it was the consequence of a fiendish curse by a local voodoo practitioner who sought revenge for her treatment in life, a woman named Julia Brown. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic.
Around 1836, a German immigrant named Martin Schlosser established a small community in the Manshack Swamp, a 630-square-mile estuary located just north of New Orleans on the western edge of Lake Pontchartrain. Originally, the town was named Schlosser for its founder, but as settlers began to develop in the area, it was given a new name, Frenier. Just over a decade after its founding, the town's population boasted about 25 families, all of which were either German immigrants themselves or families of German heritage. At first, Frenier was a logging community and operated primarily as one until 1849, when Martin Schlosser's brother Adam arrived in town and introduced the idea of farming for profit. The nutrient-rich alluvial land in and around Frenier allowed crops, particularly cabbage, to thrive. Soon enough, the community became known for this crop, which was marketed as Frenier sauerkraut. So well known was the quality of the product that vegetable dealers from the French market in nearby New Orleans often traveled to the town to purchase crops right out of the fields. At its peak, there was a total of 4,000 acres of land in Frenier devoted to cabbage. Then, in 1854, the Frenier station of the Illinois Central Railroad was built. It was a boon for the town, which until then was so isolated, it could only be reached by boat. The emergence of this railway also opened up a larger market for Frenier sauerkraut, and the introduction of refrigeration and express freight allowed crops to be sent to market as far north as Chicago. As can be expected, the railroad became essential to the community. Everything arrived and departed via this train. If residents needed anything from New Orleans, they would flag it down and give a list to the engineer, who would then deliver these goods on the return journey. In addition, knowing that these towns liked to get word of what was happening in the outside world, a conductor or flagman occasionally threw a newspaper or two from the train as it passed. It likely would have been one of these newspapers in September of 1915 that informed the residents of Frenier that a hurricane was brewing in the Gulf of Mexico, headed straight towards New Orleans. Unfortunately, this particular late September storm was not just another storm, for when the hurricane finally cleared and the damage assessed, it was written in a local paper, quote, Frenier is reported to be entirely wiped out. Nearly all the residents perished. But one thing that these early reports of the hurricane's aftermath did not include is a legend 
that has since become one of the most infamous in Louisiana. A story that claims the hurricane wasn't a natural occurrence, but rather the deliberate actions of an angered voodoo priestess. Legend says that Julia Brown was a local voodoo practitioner who lived on the edge of town for several decades while becoming an essential part of Frenier. Since the community lacked the ease of transport and access of the more modern resources found in New Orleans, when folks needed medical attention, they had limited options. They could either wait for a train, attempt to walk miles through the swamp, to the nearest sizable town of Laplace, where they could visit Julia, who used her knowledge of voodoo as a healer. For years, she lived and helped take care of the people of Frenier. She worked to help lessen their fevers and infections with herbal remedies, assisted childbirths, and set broken bones. And it is said that she became so well-liked and respected even, that she was frequently called Aunt Julia by her neighbors. Yet some claim that Julia was known for more than just her charms. According to local lore, at some point Julia's relationship with the community began to sour as her neighbors started feeling entitled to demand services from the healer with little respect for her, her skills, or her faith. Then, her husband Celestin's death around 1910 brought more isolation between Julia and the townspeople, leading to the claims that she spent most of her time in a rocking chair on her porch, placing knots in a black piece of yarn and singing eerie songs with ominous lyrics lyrics that either foretold the demise of Frenier or cursed it. She would sing, When I die, I'll take the whole town with me. Then, on September 28, 1915, Julia Brown died of natural causes at the approximate age of 70. But eerily, after her funeral began, the rain started to fall and the wind began to rise as an immense hurricane began its destruction of the town. Hurricane force winds are brutal. They can snap trees like matchsticks, pop the roof of a building off like the cork of a champagne bottle, and fling boats from the water with the ease and quickness of a simple coin flip. This particular storm would later become known as either the New Orleans Hurricane or the West Indian Hurricane of 1915. 
although hurricanes were not categorized at the time, as they are now, records indicate that by today's standards, this one reached a strength of a Category 3 or 4 at the time of its landfall, with wind gusts boasting an intensity of at least 125 miles per hour. Area newspaper, L'Observateur, described the great hurricane during the aftermath. Quote, The finished record of the storm show that it broke all local records in wind velocity. Tragically, Frenier and the other small communities of the Manchac Swamp area dealt with the worst of it, as the eye of the storm and the most vicious weather of the hurricane's eyewall passed directly overhead. But as is the case for many hurricanes, it was not the rain and wind that caused the most damage, but rather the storm surge. The small isthmus separating Lakes Morapass and Pontchartrain, where the towns of Frenier and Ruddock were located, experienced massive surges reaching between 12 and 25 feet, depending on the location, with Frenier itself likely seeing at least 13 feet of water, overrunning the 8 feet of elevation at which the community built its homes. For the residents and the attendees to Julia Brown's funeral, there was truly no safe place to find shelter on that fateful day. Some attempted to stay in their homes while others sought refuge in the local school. About 30 people went to the railway depot, and an unknown number of others attempted to ride out the storm within the swamp itself. But in those evening hours of September 30th, 1915, homes were washed away, as was the schoolhouse, and the roof of the train depot collapsed before it too disappeared into the swamp. A survivor of the hurricane, Helen Schlosser Berg, was 14 years old in 1915. She was interviewed several times about her experiences and survival before her death in 1990. Of the storm, she recalled, Water was all around, risen about 10 feet, Waves were hitting against the house. All of his kids were crying and scared to death. The family first left their home for the schoolhouse, which had some safety, having been built near the railroad tracks. Yet the water did not stop. It had risen to 20 feet, came over the track, and the building was starting to move. Once the building began moving, Helen's family left and traveled by Piro further into the swamp. Luckily, they heard the train. Train number 99 became the saving grace for many who lived in the area. The engineer who traveled the route twice a day knew where the residents lived and the danger they were in. The train's horn blew as it continued on to New Orleans, and when people were seen screaming, and waving their arms, 
the train slowed and stopped multiple times, picking up resonance as it moved forward. Unfortunately, time did not work in its favor, and eventually train number 99 became stranded when the railway tracks were washed away in front of it. There was an attempt to reverse course, but the tracks behind the train had been destroyed as well. Luckily, it ultimately withstood the storm in spite of water penetrating the train itself, and those fortunate enough to have boarded like Helen Schlosser Berg and her family, survived. But many who rode out the storm in the Manshack Swamp were not so lucky. One unnamed survivor who spent the night clinging to a cypress tree said that he had to shut his ears to the sounds of the screams of those drowning around him. Weather finally cleared on October 1st. The towns of Frenier, Ruddock, and Wagram were gone. Homes and buildings were flattened or washed away, and miles of train tracks were destroyed. It took time for aid to come to these remote communities, leaving survivors with no food, only the clothes on their back, and in many cases, no shelter. Roughly 275 to 375 people were estimated to have died in Louisiana as a result of this hurricane, and between 30 to 60 of them were in Frenier and Ruddock alone. And it took weeks for the dead to be located, with one story claiming that some remains were still being found a month after the storm. When able to, the deceased were placed on rafts to travel the high water to the community cemetery. But others simply had to be buried where they lay, a nameless grave in the midst of the swamp. So much devastation was wrought that between 25 and 30 people had to be buried in a common grave together because according to L'Observateur, quote, the storm had blown away all tools, nails, and boards so no coffins could be constructed, and all the dead had to be buried in the ground as they were. As for Julia Brown, her body, abandoned during her funeral, was recovered several days later, but it is unclear exactly where she was finally laid to rest. Y'all, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about one of my favorite nonprofit organizations here in Middle Tennessee. It's called Poster Nashville. Now, this organization supports people during times of housing or medical crises by providing compassionate, temporary care for their pets. That's right. Poster helps secure loving homes for beloved little furballs when their human companions are going through things that might otherwise cause them to have to give them up. But since Poster began back in 2020, they've been able to reunite nearly 250 pets with their loving pet parents after they were able to secure housing, 
keeping families together through tough times. Of course, y'all, I have to say from personal experience, it's been an awesome program to be around. My kids and I have been fortunate enough to hang out with some of the pups, and trust me, what Poster is doing through a devoted network of volunteers is absolutely heartwarming. So if you'd like to help, Poster is in the middle of their annual fundraiser right now, trying to hit a goal of $20,000, and it would mean the world to me if you'd consider helping us get there. All you got to do is visit southerngothicmedia.com bark. That's right, southerngothicmedia.com bark. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. According to census records, Julia Brown was born around January of 1845 in Louisiana. Many stories claim that her maiden name was Bernard, and her early life was spent in the Gentilly area of New Orleans. However, there has thus far been no success in identifying records to confirm these details. As a black woman, it is also unknown if Julia Brown was born free or enslaved. Most of what can be confirmed about her comes from three census records, the earliest dating back to 1880, when she was approximately 35 years old. These records show that Julia had no formal education and explicitly stated that she could neither read nor write. Then, sometime in or around 1880, Julia married Celestine Brown. Together, the couple had at least five children, three of which were still living in 1900. Early in their marriage, they resided in the sixth ward of St. John the Baptist Parish. But on August 24, 1897, Celestine Brown was given a federal land grant for 40.36 acres that would today be part of what is known as Frenier Beach. There, the couple lived together before Celestine passed away in 1910, followed by Julia on September 28, 1915, two days before the Great Hurricane. Her funeral was scheduled for 4 o'clock on September 30th. The event was, in fact, well attended, for Julia was indeed well-liked, and people came from miles away to pay their respects. But eerily, just as the legend portrays, Julia's funeral was interrupted by the start of the storm, and it was chronicled only days later by the New Orleans Times-Picayune on October 2nd. As a warning to our listeners, 
This article uses racially inflammatory language to describe the event. But since it is the earliest appearance of Miss Brown in public record, outside of census and property records, we feel it is important in not only understanding the evolution of the legend, but also the context of Miss Brown's life and how she was viewed in the society around her. It read, Negroes had gathered for miles around to attend the funeral of Aunt Julia Brown, an old negress who was well known in that section and was a big property owner. The funeral was scheduled for four o'clock and Aunt Julia had been placed in her casket and the casket had in turn been placed in the customary wooden box and sealed. At four o'clock, however, the storm had become so violent that the Negroes left the house in a stampede abandoning the corpse. The corpse was found Thursday, and so was the wooden box, but the casket never has been found. Notably, this article, published only days after her death, not only fails to mention the recently departed's relationship with voodoo, but it also lacks references her supposed involvement in conjuring the tragedy. So the question that comes to light is how did Julia Brown, member and large landowner of the Frenier community, evolve into the legendary voodoo queen who cursed it? The earliest located published mention of Julia practicing voodoo is not until 1972 when an article in the L'Observateur recounted the demise of Frenier and Ruddock under the headline Was 1915 Hurricane Which Wrecked Frenier Foretold? Yet this story, which was clearly written after the local lore began to evolve, does not portray Julia Brown as an angry, vengeful voodoo queen or priestess but rather as possibly a well-loved practitioner of the faith who was aware of what was coming. Relying heavily on the remembrances of survivor Helen Schlosser-Berg, the following is quoted regarding Miss Brown. When asked if Berg believed that Julia Brown was a voodoo, she smiled and answers, Well, after that... We really thought so. Variations of the modern legend echo this sentiment, as each telling describes her song with slightly different lyrics. This particular article claims her song was, quote, Oh, the day I die, I'll take half of Frenier with me. Other retellings, however, include lyrics such as, One day I'm going to die and take the whole town with me. Or even, on the day I die, I take Frenier with me. Of course, in spite of this publication, in 1972, almost five decades after her death, there is still little to no verifiable proof as to whether Julia Brown was indeed a practitioner of voodoo, much less a leader, such as a voodoo priestess or queen, as the legend contends. Some claims do exist that modern voodoo queens 
have located records that reference a priestess named Julia Brown. However, these claims have not been confirmed, and if indeed they do exist, they might not even be referring to the Julia Brown of Frenière. Historically speaking, what is possible and most likely is that Mrs. Brown was a person known regionally as a Tratus, a Creole faith healer who used a combination of Catholicism and folk remedies to treat ailments. A practice that did not involve voodoo at all. Yet at some point after the 1972 article raised the possibility that she could be a voodoo practitioner, the legend grew even further and made her one. The practice of voodoo in Louisiana has history dating back to the earliest days of enslavement in the colony. At its core, Louisiana voodoo is a set of spiritual beliefs and practices developed from the traditions of Africans forcibly brought to the area. Over time, the oppression of their traditions began to synchronize with the spiritual faith of Catholic and French Creole traditions, evolving into something unique to the region. Although related, Louisiana voodoo is a separate religious faith and practice than Haitian voodoo and Southern hoodoo. Unfortunately, voodoo's representation in the broader culture is steeped with both inaccuracies and negative racial stereotypes. The motion picture industry has played a particularly damaging role in the creation of these stereotypes, often using voodoo as a catch-all for any type of black magic, frequently portraying its practitioners as villains. Yet these negative stereotypes have in fact existed for far longer than the birth of Hollywood. Demonization of the practice of voodoo in America first began at the end of the 18th century following the Haitian Revolution, a successful attempt to overthrow the French colony of Saint-Dominique by the enslaved population forced to work there. As can be expected, Americans feared the possibility of a similar event occurring here, and French colonists in North America even began attempting to put an end to the practice of voodoo. However, the religion survived, albeit incredibly misunderstood. Amidst this backdrop, the stereotype of African women as practitioners of evil became as common in folklore as the voodoo doll, but its integrity is as misinformed as such other negative images of black womanhood as the Jezebel and Mammy. While none of this directly negates the possibility of Julia Brown practicing voodoo, it does highlight the cultural groundwork that would allow her to devolve from a well-meaning faith healer into a full-blown voodoo priestess without any evidence to support the claim.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. In spite of its status as one of Louisiana's most infamous legends, the curse of Julia Brown has been documented in very few publications outside of local newspapers. Although the most prominent proponent of her existence as a vengeful voodoo queen was through television. In October of 2014, the Weather Channel released an episode of its series, American Supernatural, by the title, The Legend of Aunt Julia Brown. The episode included interviews of numerous residents of the Manshack Swamp region, most of which include dramatic and romanticized tellings of the legend, even claiming that the curse of Julia Brown still lingers today. Yet many who know and understand Louisiana voodoo, believe that if Julia Brown was in fact a practitioner or even a priestess, she would never have called upon a hurricane to cause such death and devastation. That Julia, at heart, was a healer and would not have wanted to hurt the people she'd worked to care for. In the century since the Great Hurricane of 1915, there have been countless attempts to revitalize the area where Frenier once thrived. Unfortunately, 
most have been met with very little success. Of the town itself, all that remains today to mark the lost communities of Frenier and Ruddock is Exit 7 on Interstate 55, labeled simply Ruddock. Public boat tours are now available through Manshack Swamp, where visitors can have a glimpse of the wilderness of Louisiana that once made up the home for the people of Frenier and Ruddock. And along this tour is a mock cemetery bearing the date 1915, a representation of the mass grave that was used following the hurricane. Of course, several feet away is an isolated grave representing the burial place of Aunt Julia Brown. This tour is where the story of the hurricane and the legend of Julia Brown continues to be told. Yet the actual cemeteries of those now lost communities are deeper in the swamp and now largely overgrown without even headstones to mark the graves. While the curse of Julia Brown may be exaggerated and possibly even fabricated, many still believe that the souls of the victims of that vicious storm continue to wander the Manshack Swamp, looking for peace and refuge from the storm. Some even claim that the sounds of their screams for help still echo through the wetlands. But whether or not they are accompanied by Julia Brown's song, whatever that may be, is up for visitors to decide. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast created by siblings Brianne and Brandon Schecksneider with the support of listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to receive even more content, including ad-free episodes, head over to our Patreon page today. The link is in the show notes. Lucky Lady Shacks. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.